I guess maybe this is love. I've noticed that being with you, I smile a little more often, I anger a little less quickly, the sun shines a little brighter, and life is so much sweeter. For being with you takes me to a different place, a place called love. For those of you who've had some experience with love, now you're, you're realizing how naive some of these quotes are, right? True love is when you put someone on a pedestal and they fall, but you're there to catch them. Love is like a butterfly. It goes wherever it pleases and pleases wherever it goes. And these are my favorite two, the last two. There are easier things in life than finding a good man, nailing jello to a tree, for instance. <laughs> and finally, I've never understood why women love cats so much. Cats are independent. They don't listen. They like to stay out all night. They don't come in when you call. And when they're home, they like to be left alone and sleep. It's like every quality a woman hates in a man, she loves in a cat. <laughs> so if you want wisdom on true love, I can tell you for sure the places that you shouldn't go are to pop culture, the all-knowing, all-wise interweb, you know, the, the magazine covers as you walk out of the grocery store. You know, some of these quotes are, are nice. They, they have some meaning to them. But in reality, they kind of just lack substance. You know, they're kind of surface level. And the problem is that our culture makes one real serious mistake when it talks about true love and trying to understand true love. And the mistake that our culture makes is falsely believing that true love is the same as romance, that essentially romance is all there is to truly loving somebody. And don't get me wrong, romance can be a wonderful thing. You know, I was an English literature major in college, so I read a lot of poetry. I have a lot of poetry. I love poetry. It's very romantic. And romance can be a wonderful thing. It's exhilarating. It gets your heart pumping. It raises your adrenaline level, and it's a wonderful gift from God. But romance is a far cry from true love. And when the Bible talks about true love, I think sometimes we tend to think that it's actually just referring to this thing that we understand as romance, but it is so much more than that. The Bible's understanding of love is kind of this knock-down, drag-out, get-dirty experience of real, true love that you know if you've ever endured in some kind of relationship with somebody where you've worked through the garbage and the hard stuff and the difficulty, and you've come to kind of find re-enchantment or love all over again. See, romance is love that craves the other person to satisfy my desires. But true love craves to give to the other person for the benefit of another and when the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about a love that is self-serving, a feeling that is selfish or self-satisfying. It's not talking about actions that are self-gratifying, that produce this kind of warm, tingly sensation in your heart. That's not what the Bible understands as love. It's talking about true love, a love that gives self-sacrificially for the benefit of another person. Romance is about consumption for my enjoyment. The, the sort of star-crossed lovers of Romeo and Juliet come to mind. Whereas true love is about sacrifice and commitment. 
And you think about the faithful, enduring love of a mother for her child when you talk about true love. So let me pray and let's explore these ideas a little bit further this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom in its pages. We thank you for your true love for us, for the example that you set for us on the cross when you willingly gave your life as an act of love for us, for our redemption, for our salvation. And God, I pray that as we look at that act, as as we look to you this morning, that our hearts would be drawn into a truer love for you. I pray that you would make us capable of loving in similar ways to the way that you love us. I pray that you would fill our hearts with fullness in your love so that we are then capable of loving others more deeply. And God, would you bless our church as we encounter this subject this morning. Amen. So the real scripture that I want to focus on this morning is just 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. So let me read that again for you real quick. The Apostle Paul, he writes, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What I noticed first about these uh, words is just their, their sense of warmth. There's not a, a, a false sense of warmth in these words. There is a true and deep sense of, wor- of warmth. Using words like affection and dear, Paul seems to even be talking to a group of friends that he's maybe had for years and years and years, these long, deep relationships, people he shares a long history with. But that's really not the case. If you were to turn to Acts 17, the book of Acts, you don't actually have to go there. The book of Acts sort of gives us a play-by-play of what happened in the church in its early days as it was getting started and moving forward after the death and resurrection of Christ. If we were to turn to Acts 17 then, we would see there Paul arrives in Thessalonica having never been in that community before. And he has no prior relationship with these people. And Acts 17 seems to indicate that he only spent a matter of three weeks with them before an angry mob forced the people that he had built relationships with there to tell him to leave so that he wouldn't be killed by this angry mob. Okay, Now, I can tell you from other passages in Scripture, Paul actually spent more time than just three weeks there. Uh, It was probably more along the lines of months that he was there. But not too long, a few months maybe. And yet Paul, in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, he makes it sound as if he'd spent considerable time with these people, growing in his love and affection for them. I once heard that in order to build a real friendship with somebody, it takes two years of investing time into that relationship. Okay? Paul was certainly not there for two years. But he still writes, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And what we see in this verse is the burning mission of Paul, who upon encountering the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in this miraculous scene, having his life forever changed by this encounter with the risen Lord, then forsakes everything that he knew previously, all of his ambition, his desires, his dreams, all of the things that he had formerly pursued and thought important, he abandons those to then pursue wholeheartedly Christ alone. And why does he do that? Why such a radical change? In Philippians 1.7, which has to be one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 
Paul writes, because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ is why Paul abandons his former life to then pursue the King of glory. And the burning mission of Paul was to declare the gospel of God to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, to those who had not yet heard. The good news that Jesus had come as the Savior of the world, the Savior for all mankind, for all those who would believe and put their faith in him. This wonderful hope that in Christ, God had come to pull sinners out of their mire, out of death, and raise them to new life for his eternal glory. And Paul then endured beatings, shipwreck, hardship, poverty, starvation. At one point, he was stoned to death, but they couldn't quite finish the job, and so he got up and he went back into the city where they stoned him. He was harassed and verbally assaulted. He was lonely and spent years in prison. And why did he endure these things? Was it because he was a criminal? Someone deserving of this kind of punishment? No, not at all. Paul endured all these things because the love of God that he had received through Christ Jesus welled up in his heart in this immensely uh, unrestrained love for the gospel an overwhelming sense that he had to tell his fellow man about redemption through Christ so they too would know the truth of Jesus. And Paul's deep sense of affection, his sense of warmth for the church in Thessalonica is entirely grounded in the fact that they received this message of hope from him gladly. They took it and they understood it and they joined with him in rejoicing in it. Okay, remember romantic love, the love that our world searches so desperately for, is this love that craves the other person for selfish, satisfied desires, for my desires. But true love craves to give for the benefit of another. And Paul knew that it was the desire of God's heart that no man should perish, that all might come to salvation through Christ Jesus. Paul knew that God gave his only son for the benefit of mankind, so Paul's single ambition for his life was therefore to lovingly give himself so that others might hear this good news of Jesus. And Paul knew that all around him, all around him wherever he traveled were people lost and hurting. People like you and me looking for true love but not finding it because we were looking in the wrong places. And he knew that the desire that spurred them on to search for that true love could only be satisfied in Christ Jesus. And so he gave of himself at great personal cost, a personal cost probably incomprehensible to most of us, to bring that message then to the ends of the earth. And so how could Paul say that in just a a manner of months he became affectionately desirous of this people? How could he say that they had become very dear to him in such a short amount of time? Well, the reason is because he loved them with a true love. Love that reflected the very love of God himself. Love that desired to give to them all that he himself had, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then I think we need to ask the question, what is the gospel? What is this treasure that Paul so emphatically tried to give to the people in Thessalonica? 
Well, again, if we were to look at Acts 17.3, you don't need to turn there. It's real short. We see Paul tells the Thessalonians while he is there very simply and very briefly what the gospel message is. He says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And if you search the Old Testament of the Bible, what you find is the promise of a Savior, a Messiah. That's the word Christ. Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Jesus Christ meaning the Messiah promised by God to make right in the world all of the damage that sin had done among people like you and me. And so the gospel is the good news that Jesus is this Savior, proven in the fact that he rose from the dead. Jesus is God's plan for salvation, and there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved. And Jesus died for the sins of the world in order that he might bring salvation to all who believe. Now, I think most of us know this truth already. I'm I'm pretty convinced that we're a church primarily of Christians. We know what the gospel is. But here in Paul, we find a truth in the gospel that maybe we've never considered before. And it's just this. The gospel fills our heart with affection for people. We are naturally self-lovers. But the gospel places in our heart a love for others. Remember, romantic love craves people for consumption in order to be satisfied. But true love, gospel love that comes from Jesus, seeks to give away that love. So again, why was Paul affectionately desirous of these people? How could he say they were very dear to him after only spending a short period of time with them? Because he desired them before he ever even got there. He desired them. They were dear to him before he had ever even met them and arrived in Thessalonica because of what God had done in Paul's heart through the gospel. And at the heart of the gospel is the true love of God that gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. And what you have to understand is that God, does, God did not need to save us. God has never been obligated to save us. God does not owe us the cross on which he pinned his son Jesus Christ for our salvation. We do not deserve it. It is not our right. But rather God chose to save us because the loving heart of God is a giving heart. It gives and gives and gives. And he longs to share himself, not only with himself in the Trinity, but with us as well. And our God is a God who loves with true love, a self-giving love, a sacrificial love. Love so true that he lifted the cursed burden of sin from off of your back and my back, from our backs, and he placed it on the back of his very own son and sent him to die on the cross, carrying the burden of our sins, the just penalty of our rebellion, to die so that we might be redeemed. And Jesus himself said, true love is this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see the example of Jesus, when I see his heart of true love, I long to be able to love like that. I'm not very good at it. It's hard. You know, the best place that I try and practice is with my wife and my children. But I find myself longing even in spite of all of my failures, longing 
to have affectionate desire for people that causes me to give myself for the benefit of another. But the temptation that we always face is not to give, right? To keep and to be stingy, even with our love. And, and the human heart is so desperately sick, it's so desperately broken, that the temptation that we face all the time is to keep this great treasure that we've been given in the love of Christ for ourselves. To be satisfied with the love of God that we have so that we end up hoarding it for our own consumption, for our own personal use and enjoyment. If you consider the plot line of just about any great romance story, it's essentially the same. It goes like this. Boy meets girl. Girl captivates boy's heart. Boy does everything he can to win the affection of girl. And if it's a good romance story, boy succeeds and keeps girl to satisfy the desire of his heart, to satisfy his need for love, and they live happily ever after, right? It's a keep. It's mine. I own this. I worked for it. And we love these stories because they're moving. They're beautiful. They're filled with passion, and they resonate with our hearts in this need for love. But the story of true love doesn't look like that. It looks more like this, and I'm telling it from my perspective, so bear with me. Boy meets God. God captivates boy's heart. God does everything he can to win the affection of boy's heart. God succeeds and then sends the boy out to tell the world about the true love of God, not to hoard it for himself. And the difference between romantic love and true love has always been this and still is one of the great issues. This is still one of the things that we as the church wrestle with today. God has blessed us with the true love of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the temptation that we face day in and day out is to keep this treasure for ourselves. But that's not true love. Because true love longs to give and to share. Which is exactly what we see from Paul in our passage. He says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. And this gospel that Paul proclaimed that you and I now have, it transforms our hearts so that we are capable of actually loving in truth. And the result is that we go from selfish, self-centered hearts to generous, giving hearts. And we desire then to share. Well, what do we share? Paul tells us two things that he shared with the church in Thessalonica. First of all, he was ready to share the gospel which means he was ready to encourage them in the true love of God. He was ready to continually lift them up in grace. He was eager to remind them of their redemption in Christ Jesus. He was passionate about blessing them with the forgiveness of God, and he longed to teach them about their new heart that God had placed inside of them through the power of his Holy Spirit. He wanted to share all of that revelation with them, and he worked to show them that the gospel of God's true love is not a treasure that can be kept for our own consumption, but one that must be shared with others who are looking for that sense of true love. But Paul tells us he didn't only share the gospel with them as if that wasn't enough, he also shared his own self. And I wonder if sometimes for us as believers, this is actually the harder thing to do 
in the church in America. Okay, it's certainly a struggle wrestling with not wanting to keep the gospel just for ourselves, right? Being courageous and sharing it and loving enough to give it away. Not to hoard our eternal treasure and instead to share it with those who need it. Friends, families, neighbors, coworkers. That's a challenge for sure. But it's also a challenge just to give ourselves to this new community of God lovers that we find ourselves to be a part of. Isn't it? I think it is if we're honest. We're stuck in our ways when it comes to romantic love. And so we have this tendency to look at the church and expect it to satisfy all of our cravings and desires. And so we become what I think is a pretty common term these days, Christian consumers. That's what we are whenever you read the newspaper. I mean, look at fourth quarter of 2014. Consumer spending was down. Consumer sentiment was down. Consumer, all you are is a consumer. And so do you bring that mindset into the church then? And here we are, Christian consumers. And if you ask people why they like big churches, often, often you will hear them say that they prefer big churches because they have more programs to consume. They have fancier worship services to consume. And they have bigger crowds to hide in so people can consume without being known. That's not everybody, and I'm not criticizing big churches, but a lot of times, that's why people like big churches and are drawn to them, because we have a lot of Christian consumers in America. And in this giant church model, it's easy to consume what the church offers without ever having to share ourselves in authentic community. But what Paul reveals to us in our passage is that the true heart of of love that God placed inside of him was compelled to give and to give and to give. And so Paul longed to share. He craved to give himself to the benefit of the church in Thessalonica. Just like God gave himself for our salvation and for the benefit of the church through the ages so that even now today you are able to reap from what the church has sown. And so the Christian message is really not a romantic message at all. It's a laborious and difficult call to lay down your life in love for others. And it ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit uneasy. And and if it doesn't, then we're probably not taking the call seriously enough. Because it's a love that shares our time, our labors, our resources, our homes Even ourselves, I read that list and I'm like, that's exhausting. It's love that gives because God gave himself to us. And there's nothing to consume here. There's just this huge chasm of need in our world and need in our church that God has raised you up to fill. By the power of his Holy Spirit at work within you, that's what he intends for you to do with this heart of love that he's given you. And so I think it's worth asking the question, is is our love romantic or is it true? Is our love for the church romantic or is it true? Is our love for the world romantic, consumeristic, or is it true, sacrificial? So by way of concrete practical application, let me tell you a couple of ways quickly 
that I think that the church can love each other with true affection. If you're the note-taking type, or even if you're not, this would be a good place to open up your bulletin and scrawl a couple of these thoughts down, okay? A couple of ways that I think we can love each other with true love and affection, the way that the church through history has been compelled to do whenever it's kept its eyes on Jesus. And I admit I came across these in an article by Aaron Gray, and what he writes is good. So uh, I'm going to just summarize some of those things for you rather than try and do it better than he did. So first of all, we forgive each other. One, forgive. We forgive each other. I mean, the truth is the Christian community is not one where we've come out of the world and so now we're sinless, right? This is not a sinless community where conflict never arises. There will be conflict here. And we should expect to be bruised and hurt even from time to time by our fellow Christians. Now, there should also be repentance, and we should expect that as well. But there should be forgiveness. And just because we fight from time to time does not mean that our community is broken and hopeless and that the gospel is not true. The test of our true love is whether or not if after the fighting we can forgive one another. And isn't it interesting that in the word forgive we find the word give. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness, forgiving is the act of giving love where it is not deserved. Giving grace where grace is not deserved. And we don't forgive somebody because they deserve it. We forgive because God has forgiven our sins and our failures. And the church that's filled with true love is a church that forgives and doesn't hold grudges where you don't find animosity between people. Number two, we pray to pray. We pray together. The next time we do a prayer night, consider joining us. We pray together. We pray for each other, the needs in our community. And we pray for our community that is not a part of our church, that God's love would invade their homes, invade their families, captivate the hearts of mommies and daddies and children. We pray that God would save those people. We lift them up in prayer. And a church filled with true, the true love of God is a church that prays, prays with a tender heart, prays maybe for a tender heart, and the courage to share both ourselves and the gospel, like Paul says. Number three, we actually live together in community. You could just put three, community. Okay, we actually live together in community. We gather together in community. We don't just talk about it. In an age of digital friendships, when it's very easy to just scroll through the Facebook feed and feel like you got your daily dose of relationships, we actually share. We share worship of God together on Sunday mornings. We share our hearts we share with our voices. We gather to praise the glorious name of Jesus together in community. We share our homes. We share our food over meals. We share our resources and our time as we gather together and we live in community. And most importantly, the one that often gets missed, we actually share ourselves, which means that we stop pretending that we're better than we are and we just open up our hearts to one another in honest friendship. And what you find when you do that is, wow, a lot of people are just like me. They're, they're screwed up. They're broken. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're not, but I am. 
They're screwed up. They're broken. They're hurting. They're, they're suffering. They're in need of friendship. They're courageous because they have courageous people around them, not naturally. And so you find that these people who you may think are different than you actually in more ways than not are very much like you. And number four, in order for the community part to work well, we have to honor and encourage one another. You're like, I can't write that fast enough. Just four, honor and encourage. We honor and we encourage one another. Again, we're all broken people. We're dysfunctional. We're sinners. We're alike in this regard. But we're also saved by grace, redeemed. We are children of the Most High God. We are the treasured possession of the King of Kings. We are made in His image and redeemed by His blood. And so we are all worthy, therefore, of great honor. We are worthy of being encouraged. We should respect each other as image bearers of our God and our King. And we should build one another up in love and unity, encourage and stimulate each other towards Christ-likeness. So we honor and we encourage. Number five, it doesn't all have to be serious. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we play together. Some people think that heaven, they don't want to go to heaven because it's going to be boring and lame. No way. It's going to be epically awesome. And so it's okay to play together, to enjoy the joy that God has put in our lives in friendships where we laugh together and we share that joy and we treasure the fun of being in relationship together. Six, some of you are like, awesome, I can have that Super Bowl party. <laughs> Number six, finally, I believe that we need to speak truth to one another and pursue godliness together. And this is one that we often fail at, maybe not our church in particular, but the one in America in general. We, we cannot let each other off the hook, guys. We call each other out. We constantly strive to raise the bar of godliness. And we throw, each, we throw ourselves on grace whenever we fail. Because it always comes back to his grace. But we look to the truth of God's word to define our lives and our community. And we trust that his word is enough. It is the recipe for growing in godliness and living in community together. And we look to his word and we speak truth. And we pursue godliness together. And this is the kind of stuff that the church has done throughout history. And when the church has done this stuff faithfully through history, the church has changed the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, people everywhere are searching for true love. Your neighbors are looking for it. Your children are looking for it. Your friends are looking for it. Even your boss at work is looking for it. But most of these people are just looking in all the wrong places. And it breaks my heart because all over this continent are churches just like this one where the true love of God is being offered, but these people don't even think to look there. They don't know we're here offering it. And instead, they allow themselves to be satisfied with romance, and romance tells them there's nothing more. Just take, 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 take. And maybe after you've taken enough, then finally you'll sort of feel full, but it's a lie. And that's why there's so many despairing people in our world today. And the high calling of love, the high calling that you and I have on our lives as God lovers is to give. And the more you give the love of Christ for the benefit of others, the more the love of Christ fills you up to fullness. And here's the beautiful thing. We don't have to be the source of this kind of love. 
Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, oh man, Grady, this is exhausting. I should have stayed home for this one today because it's just too much. I can't do this. Well, we don't have to be the source of this kind of love. We don't have to will our hearts to feel love. That's not how love works. It is Jesus who is the source of this kind of love, and we are merely a conduit through which he sends that love to the world. You know, like copper wire sending power and electricity through your house. Now, it would be silly and ridiculous to think of copper wire as the source of the energy. The wire doesn't produce the electricity. It just allows it to flow through it. And Paul was never his source for his love for the church in Thessalonica. He simply allowed the love of Christ that he knew and experienced so powerfully to pass through him to the people in Thessalonica. So he was empowered then to share his life and the gospel with them. And if you, have to th- if you think you have to muster up love for other people in this church and for the lost people around you, then you're doing it wrong and you're going to feel weary and burned out very soon. You're like a severed piece of copper wire trying to produce electricity on its own. And the source of our true love comes from the endless reservoir of the love of Christ constantly being poured into us. He is the revelation of true love. He is the end of true love. He is the goal of true love. He is the means of true love. He is the source of true love. He is the one from whom all power and ability to truly love comes. So let us then take the example of the Apostle Paul to heart. Let us be affectionate for one another because we've received this true love from Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going to take communion together now, and the way we do it at Maricopa Springs is what we call intinction. So the worship team is going to come forward here in just a moment, and as they lead us in worship through singing, you also have the opportunity to worship God through communion. And that means that at any point in the next worship song or even the next couple songs, if you want to take your time, you're welcome to just get up, make your way over to the side of the room. We have both wine and grape juice. We also have gluten-free crackers, okay? So you can grab one of those crackers, dip it in the wine or the grape juice, whatever your preference is, and you can eat it right there. What I ask you to do before you go to the table, though, is to consider the state of your heart this morning. Is the true love of God flowing into your heart? Is there a sense of gratitude in your heart for what Jesus did on the cross? And I want you to understand there's nothing romantic about the cross. Neither in form nor in function is the cross in any way romantic. It is ugly, it is hideous, it is scandalous. It is profane and vulgar that our God would be murdered like a criminal on a cross in such an embarrassing and humiliating way. And there's no romance in the blood of Jesus dripping down that crude, rugged cross to cover the sins of the world. But neither is there any romance in the act of Jesus dying. Because in the act of Jesus dying, God did not seek a self-serving situation. His It is romance, rather, that seeks to crave its own desires. 
And on the cross, Jesus gave himself. He gave himself for our salvation. He didn't die for himself. He died for you and he died for me, for sinners broken. And in that act of true love, it is God who has brought endless glory to the name of Jesus by redeeming us and showering us with his affection. Let me pray. God, we thank you for, your, for the cross. We thank you that in this indecent, unromantic act where you poured out your blood on Calvary, that we were redeemed. Not because you sought something for yourself, not because you were motivated by selfish desires, but because you longed to give the love that you have always had for yourself from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we thank you that we get to be invited in that by the blood of your Son, Jesus, who died for our redemption. God, would you make us true lovers, lovers of you and lovers of people, by the grace of your Son, Jesus. Amen.